Hey, everybody, welcome to episode four of Waking Up the Narcissism. I'm your host, Tony Overbay, and let's dive right in. Uh, I would love to encourage you to continue to send your examples, questions, anything that is on your mind through the contact form at TonyOverbay.com. I've been compiling all of that on one Google document, and I have to tell you, I think we're up to about 13 or 14 pages single space. So that is to say that the feedback has been overwhelming, and uh, I wanted to highlight just a few things with regard to feedback just because I want you to know that there is comfort in numbers. I know that that doesn't bring resolution, but I the, the what I'm hearing is um, just here's some examples. Just I've listened to the podcast several times with tears running down my face. Thanks for spreading awareness uh, to so many people trapped, abused, confused, insecure, and uncertain what's real. Um, listening to your podcast was shocking. I could have sat in your office sharing my life that became the foundation of your podcast. Or someone saying, I just listened to the first episode. It's absolutely mind-blowing. This is my life. I've been married for this many years uh, with my spouse. We have kids together. Everything you said in the first episode is my life. It's scary. I'm looking forward to listening, but but also scared. And and I, I, I imagine that. I can understand that that's going to be the feeling a lot. I had someone else uh, talking about they were in the midst of uh, grieving this idealized relationship with their parents and now recognizing the, the narcissism. And um, just this person in particular said they'd never paused a podcast to look up the author, track down the contact info, and contact them just to say thank you. So I'm, I'm just grateful that people are finding a little bit of comfort in just knowing that they're not alone. Um, another another one says, uh, oh gosh, episode two had me, especially when you were talking about the the emails you were talking about. They, they said, uh, this person said that they've been going to couples therapy. It's it's just gone really bad. They feel broken. Um, at this moment, their spouse feels like they're being selfish and that uh, he's been stonewalling them between sessions. And so it's just so, I, I'm so grateful that people are finding comfort and understanding that it really just is not them. They're not alone. And there's also, if I do just a search for the word crazy in the emails, that's there's it's used often. Someone saying here, um, they say that there are times that their spouse and them, they feel like they're just roommates and they would love for their relationship to be better. And in this particular instance, uh, this, this person who submitted the email said that uh, talking about their husband, he literally said, I'm sorry, you feel that way, but then walk away. And she said, if I don't ask questions in a certain way, then he won't answer me. And he'll either be quiet or he'll say that I don't understand what you're saying. And the latter one, because then if she clarifies better what she means, but now if it's in a judgmental way, then he says that she's phrasing the question wrong. And then he'll rarely talk to her. But here was one of the big keys is that she said she can count on her hand how many times that he has inquired about her personally. But then what breaks my heart is this next line. And again, the word crazy, I can find that in the emails that people are sending me. She says, am I crazy? I feel crazy sometimes, rarely is, is anything his fault. And he almost always has to be right. However, with that said, I still feel like most of the hard parts of our relationship are my fault. Why can't I be okay with, quote, the way things are? And she said, I just, I, it's, I, I don't like when he puts such a negative light because he really is a good person. I know I'm not perfect. And that's the part that, again, just breaks my heart. And I wanted to address that. There's a quote from an article that I included. Uh, there's a virtual couch episode on this. And it was one about uh, psychopaths versus sociopaths. And so it's a little bit of a hidden gem at the end of that one. And it's from an article called Narcissist or Sociopath, The Similarities, the Differences, and the Signs. This is back from 2016, a Psychology Today article. But this quote has just stuck with me for so long. Um, and they talk about that the narcissist or the sociopath are both 
extremely good or they have a sixth sense for spotting the right people to manipulate. And I do believe it's a subconscious thing. It's not as if they are out there just wanting to prey on someone. It's just that's the person that they find is the person that will engage with them, the person who will fall victim to the love bombing. But here's what this uh, this article says. It says, narcissists and sociopaths are extremely good at sniffing out trusting, vulnerable people who tend to see the good in others. Thus, they can be very difficult for nice people to spot until the offender has wreaked tremendous and undeniable havoc. And relatedly, because people tend to view others as subscribing to a generally accepted moral code, such as that lying and harming others is wrong, even an otherwise savvy person can work hard to find the good reason why somebody is acting off rather than identifying problem personalities and behaviors for what they are. And, and I'll go on about that in a little bit, but boy, I tried to read that as slow as I can just because uh, there's so much there that that nice people, um, it's very difficult for a nice person who's willing to give someone the benefit of the doubt to then call someone out on their gaslighting or the inconsistencies of their story, even if they're very confident that what they're seeing is a lie. And so the next part of that quote, relatedly, because people tend to view others as subscribing to a generally accepted moral code. And that one in itself, we tend to think that people see life through the same lens that we do. And I was speaking at an event a few nights ago, and uh, and I'll just tell a quick story. There were a few years ago, I used to run around a track in my local town for 24 hours to raise money for schools and for kids and, and those sort of things. And the first year that I was running this race, I had never ran the race before. And it was an all new experience or it wasn't a race, but it was running around the track for 24 hours. And so I, I didn't exactly, I had a million bananas and gels and hydration. And every time I run around the track, I'm saying to my wife, how am I doing? And she's saying, you know, you're doing great. Uh, you're doing better than you think. And I ended up having some, some struggles, some challenges, some issues, ended up making it through. We raised a lot of money for the community. I think uh, that first year ran about 111 miles. And afterward I was, I was sharing notes with my wife and I kind of just said, Hey, when you would tell me you're doing awesome or you're doing better than you think, how'd you know that? And, uh, and I loved it because she had said something to the effect, this was years ago, but something like, well, it was the first time we're doing it. I mean, you're doing it, you were doing it as well as you could do it. And, and I think about that often of you're going through this life for the first time. You're going through that marriage or that awareness or awakening to narcissism for the first time. And, and so how would you not think that other people are ascribing to the same uh, beliefs or, or that they that we all see things through a similar lens. That's normal. That's human. There's nothing wrong with you for thinking that we're all kind of seeing things similar. In that same vein, and uh, this presentation uh, earlier this week, I also talked about how what's fascinating is that you can have two people stand side by side and have them see the same thing. So you've got the same input but then have them literally in that very moment write down what they saw and it's going to be two completely different outputs. And so it can be that simple that we're we're just experiencing things for the first time it, it, at any given moment. And then we're also then bringing in that input and then our output is going to be different. So everyone is going to be different. But this is where I want to tell you the narcissist, the sociopath, the psychopath, um, they're, they're coming from a completely different place. And it sounds like I'm being mean or judgmental, but uh, part of the reason I was excited to do this podcast is I just need to, at this point, say um, that's it, it's we just need to accept that. Because again, as I covered in earlier episodes, this comes from some deep childhood wounding. We got some nature and some nurture going on. And so when somebody has worked from a, 
when they've started operating from a mindset of that they can literally never be wrong or that will be abandonment and abandonment equals death, then especially when you're going through that in your youth, where again, every kid is already a a little egotistical, uh, narcissistic um, being just because they're a kid. But then with the right modeling, with the right, uh, with people parenting them well, um, with people that they in their in their immediate sphere of influence are taking ownership of their behaviors or actions or apologizing for things. So if you see that behavior and you have that secure attachment with your parents, with your with your friends, with uh, those around you, you're going to grow from self-centered to self-confident. But if you are self-centered to begin with, which again, we all are as little kids because the world revolves around us because that's just the way that that life works. But if you don't have that modeling, if you don't have that uh, example, if the people in your life haven't, haven't taken ownership for their behaviors or they are a bit absentee or are so many other factors, then that person goes from self-centered to self-centered. So that's where it can feel like you're arguing at times with a, with a 10-year-old boy or a 10-year-old girl, so to speak. And the reason I go into that is because um, now fast forward 20, 30, 40 years where that person has been on that pathway, you've been on a completely different one. And and you're now, let's say that you're on the West Coast and you're describing the beach and the ocean, and they're somewhere in the middle of Kansas talking about a cornfield. And so you're you're even talking about two completely different things. The 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 problem, I don't want to frame it as a problem, but the problem is you get to realize, oh my gosh, they're talking about Kansas and they're saying, uh, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, that's ridiculous. You know, all I see in front of me is, is cornfields and wheat. And so, and, and they'll convince you of that to the point where all of a sudden you're sitting there looking out at the ocean and you're thinking, okay, my, is this even real? You know, or because uh, they're pretty convincing. So when you look at it that way, I go back to this quote, because people tend to view others as subscribing to a generally accepted moral code, such as that lying and harming others is wrong then a, a otherwise savvy person is working hard to find the good reason why somebody's acting off rather than identifying the problem personalities and behaviors for what they are. And I remember the first time I read that quote, even in the, this episode, I just moved past that, that lying and harming others is wrong, but it's real. I mean, I have worked with clients who have then sat across the, from their spouse in a court case and watched their spouse, their narcissistic spouse, lie to the judge, lie to the jury. I've been in court cases where I have testified on behalf of a client um, in a, uh, getting out of a relationship with a, with a narcissistic uh, person. And, and that, that narcissist has, has just openly lied in court, but it's because they're just not going to ever be wrong because being wrong is abandonment and abandonment equals death. And the hard part is that they've typically surrounded themselves with people that eventually just give in or acquiesce or just say, okay, I guess that's the way it is, that then they're assuming that the, the judge is going to do that, their attorney is going to do that. There's, there's fascinating data that shows how often that um, a narcissist even going through, let's say, a, a legal proceeding um, changes their attorney. Why? Because they know more than their attorney. So when their attorney doesn't agree to do what they tell them to do, then they say, okay, well, you don't get it. You're fired. And then they eventually find, I mean, I'm, I'm overgeneralizing, trust me, because uh, I'm like, then they eventually find an attorney who says, okay, hey, it's your money. Uh, I, I'll, I'll say what you want me to say. So, and then what does that do? It just becomes more of this echo chamber of they get that validation. And, and so 
The next part of this quote is pretty interesting too. So then feelings of anger, distrust, distrust, or fear about what we quote know about a loved one is going to cause us great distress, otherwise known as cognitive dissonance. So as a result, then most of us wind up resolving this cognitive dissonance by reinterpreting the facts that feel at odds with what we need and want to believe about somebody. So what does that mean? So we've already talked about how nice people are um, are in these relationships. We, we talked about that last episode, I think, this human magnet syndrome. The pathologically kind meet the pathological narcissist, and that does create this unfortunate uh, mag- you know, this trauma bond, this human magnet syndrome. And now the nice person believes that that person that they're married to must be um, operating at least from a similar moral code. So then even if they watch their spouse lie, then they think there's got to be a reason. Maybe he's just tired. Maybe he's just stressed. Maybe it is because I'm not doing what he wants me to do, but that's not the case. You know, so now all of a sudden the nice person is working hard to find the good reason why somebody's acting off rather than recognizing this pattern or this problem personality or the behavior for what it is. So now, now they feel anger or they, they don't trust them or they fear what the person uh, across from them is saying or doing. And that causes distress. It, it causes us to feel um, this cognitive dissonance. I don't like what I'm feeling and what I'm seeing because it's different than what I want to believe. And so our brain needs to make sense of things. So then at that point, we are going to resolve that cognitive dissonance by reinterpreting the facts that feel at odds with what we need what we need, and we want to believe about somebody. We're going to start creating a narrative that it must be all these other external factors, you know, again, maybe stressed or hungry or, or tired or, you know, we're not having enough sex or whatever it is. And then what does that do? Now, all of a sudden, now I can even internalize it because I'm the nice person. So now I can say, man, it must be me. It really must be me. But, but then when we talked about this on this, uh, this women's group last night, what an amazing call. And a lot of people have reached out and have asked uh, about joining this, this group and, and please feel free to reach out and contact me. And um, it, it was such a powerful call, though there were a lot of new people on there. But then people then start to do the, again, the what's wrong with me story. And then we had a, a big part of the call last night where, you know, it's natural or normal then to start thinking, okay, I just need to, I just need to try. I just need to, to try to do more. And so if he's saying that, I need to, um, I don't know, if I need to be more physically attentive, if I need to do whatever, and then they do, well, guess what? Now it's something else. Well, now you never ask me how I'm doing, or now you just expect this of me. So then the nice person will then, they'll then you know, mold themselves into this, whatever that uh, the narcissist wants them to be. But then surprisingly, now it's something else. And that even goes on after separation or even after divorce, where now the, the nice person will go back and think, oh my gosh, if I would have just done more of this other thing that he said, then maybe the relationship would have worked. And, and man, bless your heart. But that's where I, I say that game is never ending because if you, and here's the, the kind of the cool deep psychology around that is that to the person that is never willing to take ownership or it, nothing is ever their fault. And again, I'm talking about a default from childhood experiences. So if that is the case, then it's, they've spent their lives saying, it's not me, it's you. If you'll just do this or this or this, then everything will be better. But when you do that, then it's something else. Because if they can continue to point the blame outward or external, then, and I think you can maybe see where I'm going, then who does not have to take uh, accountability or ownership of their actions? Them. So, and I've had some fascinating examples of this in, in cases where, um, I once had a client that came to me for 
uh, it's, I'll, and I'll say, quote, quote, pornography addiction. But then when they came in, they were they were having some acting out behaviors every few months. I mean, months. So definitely didn't fall into the category of addiction. That's for sure. And so it was relatively easy to, to quote, cure this person. And at one point, their spouse uh, came to me and said, oh, my gosh, you've, you've worked a miracle with him. You know, I've got I've got my husband back. And so then it was time for them. They said, okay, they're going to start to do their work. But when they started to do their work, it was difficult and it was scary. And so they they withdrew from the therapy with their therapist. And at that point, now what happened? Now they they said, okay, no, now he's doing these other things. And I was working with him at that time, this person. And we did everything we could to have him, you know, he still was not uh, acting out. There was no relapse. Um, he was being more attentive. He was trying to do more of, of one one person couples therapy is what I, I was calling it. But that was never enough until then finally some heavy accusations were logged against this person. And uh, because ultimately the person with the narcissistic tendencies or narcissistic traits, when it got to the point where they didn't have anything else they could blame externally, and then they they tried to do a little bit of a deep dive on themselves and it got uncomfortable and scary then it was almost like this reflexive action to then point it right back at the person, uh, at someone else, to project onto someone else. Because then again, I don't. it's not about them. And so you can start to see the pathology around that and where that can lead. Um, I'm going to wrap this up pretty quick here, but I wanted to really quickly touch on, I got so many emails talking about gaslighting because it's interesting. You know, people ask, does the, does the narcissist know they're gaslighting? You know, is there... Uh, hey, all of a sudden they realize, wait, I'm gaslighting too. And so I did an episode long ago on types of gaslighting. So I was going to go through those really quick. Um, this is from a, a article from, I think it's from uh, called the Good Men Project. And it talks about four levels of gaslighting. I think this is just interesting. And, and I'm going to be honest, on my virtual couch podcast, I'm talking about more general mental health issues. And so I think in that scenario, I'm trying to just put it out there to the universe, you know, um, and I think sometimes that can be used against the, the kind person. What I mean by that is that this podcast is called Waking Up to Narcissism. So I'm talking to the people that are, are waking up to narcissism. Uh, it's rare that the narcissist, because again, they don't know they're a narcissist. If you're asking yourself, am I the narcissist? Most of the, I mean, number one rule is no, you're not. Because you're asking yourself, because that means you have some awareness that you're aware of, uh, of your, you have a sense of self, you know, you're willing, you're trying desperately to own it. Isn't that fascinating? So you're saying, wait, maybe I'm the narcissist because I, I, I could do that. I could apologize. I could take ownership of this and then maybe everything will be better. But no, you're, you're acting the way you're doing. You're acting the way you're acting in reaction to not feeling heard, not feeling understood from the gaslighting. And I will say this every episode I can, but if you put yourself in another relationship where you feel heard and seen and understood and, and you're not continually fixed or judged, would you thrive or would you still just walk in and start yelling at your husband? I don't think so. Or, or wife, you know, depending on the situation. So that was a big, long ramble. I was about to say, where was I going with that? But I remember um, gaslighting. As I am going to go through these four different types of gaslighting, I want to, I want you to listen to this with the, this is the, if I am doing it, it's most likely one of these more, I'll just call it innocent types, or there's a reason behind it. It's not done to confuse or push away the blame. It's done because you don't feel heard. So first type, unconscious gaslighting, the person is totally unaware that they're engaging in it. In fact, they perceive that they're being very reasonable in their interactions because they don't have any clue about the impact of what they were doing. And they might even lack the capacity or the willingness to question their own viewpoint and consideration of another's viewpoint. And here's what this can look like. The I don't get it. The I don't get it act. 
So, and the example they give is over the course of a week, this person said I had explained and re-explained the company's vision to my colleague so many times. They said I teach English as a second language for a living, so I'm intimately familiar with how to break down concepts and reword definitions and give examples. And this was a totally different issue, and my colleague continued to claim confusion over and over again. So when somebody says that they're confused and they make no effort to dive into why they're confused and they continually put the onus on you to explain it, it not only becomes tedious, but it has you starting to question what you're saying. So this person said they began to wonder, you know, how is it that I'm not getting through or how is it that he's not understanding the ideas that I'm explaining? And then it hit me, he didn't want to understand, but likely didn't even know that. So someone who truly wants to understand, they make efforts in that direction. And this is where I say, boy, instead of judgment, again, try curiosity. And, and, and I do a lot of couples work, uh, my magnetic marriage couples course, and this is not trying to plug this, but is uh, starting up in a few weeks. And so I, I teach what I just love, these four pillars of a connected conversation, but the goal is to be heard. To be heard is to be healed. And so oftentimes, you know, when, if I don't understand you, but I desperately want to, and I'm curious, and I just, I'm, I'm struggling to understand you then there are ways to, to frame that communication. My, my four pillars of assuming good intentions, can't put out the message you're wrong, questions before comments, and then don't go into your bunker, stay present. I've done a lot of those episodes on the virtual couch, but there is a framework to make that happen. But if someone truly does not want to understand, then they're not going to put in that effort. And that can be so frustrating. Uh, they also give this example. It says, coexisting in a parallel universe. Along with ignoring my words, my colleague addressed issues that he claimed I had raised. He said, it's as though I had mentioned ice cream. And his response was, well, we talked about cheesecake. And he said, as you can imagine, this was so baffling. What, you know, what was he addressing or who was he addressing? Was he even addressing me? If he had added words in like, you know, this raised a different issue for me, um, this other issue X, he said, then I would have understood. But instead he would say things like, you know, your point about X again. So if he's saying, you know what you were saying about cheesecake and you're, and you're like, I, I never said cheesecake. But when uh, they said that when they referred back to their messages to see if they had talked about cheesecake, and it had never been raised, they began to wonder if we were just existing in this strange and parallel universe with alternate forms of ourselves. And he said, I truly believe, however, that he thought I had raised those points about cheesecake, which is all the more baffling. The second type of gaslighting is an awareness that something's off. And in this case, um, the author said that they believe the gaslighter senses that something isn't working, but they're still not aware of what that impact is on the gaslightee. So likely, the gaslighters had previous experiences similar to this one, and they've come to feel this uneasiness around the interaction, but they still just kind of keep moving on ahead. Because why would they change the approach if you really do think that you're right to engage as you've been doing and still don't fully understand why people aren't interested in engaging? So here's what that can look like. They call it the flood of words. So one person said that they would send a, a short message to their colleague only to receive a deluge in response. So one sentence would receive a multi-paragraph response, and it was overwhelming, and it had the effect of totally wiping out anything that they had said. And so he says, I understand some people are verbose while others are more succinct. Um, this woman, though, said she was married to a man who is verbose, so she's well-versed in this flood of words. And at the same time, she said she would continually wonder, where does this come from? You know, what was I even asking? I wasn't asking that and so on. And she said, I felt that like, my reality was quivering. How did what I wrote necessitate a response that not only didn't acknowledge my words, but it included a conversation I had never started and I was massively overwhelmed in quantity. And furthermore, the flood of words did not seem to be my colleague's attempt to understand me or have an interchange. Instead, he created a wall of explanation from his point of view or an endless tide of justification to push back and obliterate what he had likely perceived as a challenge. And I have to tell you, when I look at my own dustings of narcissism, and, and I'm not kidding around, I mean, that's part of uh, why I'm just so fascinated by this work. And, and 
it, I mean, I'm good with that flood of words and I type fast and I know that there have been times where I probably overwhelmed my wife where I wasn't even aware that I was just jumping into the world of justification and probably not even answering the question. So that's one to really, the, you know, you, if, to be aware of. The third is intentional. And here's where things start to get a little bit interesting. More of an, a more aware of an impact, but no intent to seriously harm. So this is a person who has more awareness than the gaslighters in situations one and two. They know what they're doing is harmful, but they would never describe themselves as gaslighting because that's, that's left for the malevolent, malevolent individuals, right? They're not trying to hurt somebody or drive them crazy, but they are into power struggles and they're so into winning. And here's what that can look like. Stonewalling, refusing to answer what's said. Oh my gosh, this one's common. If you are in a relationship with a narcissist, I would imagine that you will ask a question. They won't answer that one. Then they'll answer, ask a question of you. You're the nice person. You respond, assuming that then they'll respond back to your question and they don't. And then if you say, did you see my text? Then you're not going to get a, yeah, you know what? I, I, I didn't really have a good answer. You're going to get a, oh, no, I never saw it. But then why did you respond to the other one? You know, and again, they're not going to take ownership, which is so frustrating, or they're going to then say, yeah, I saw your text. I don't know how I'm supposed to answer that. It's ridiculous. So stonewalling, refusing to answer what's been said. Um, in this uh, article, the, the person said, in fact, my colleague not only did that, he simply acted as though what I had said never existed. Uh, messages would be exchanged. And if I was left wondering if he had actually read my words, had my message gone through? I was certain I had, but why was he so oblivious to what I had said? How come every word made little to no impact? He said, my words disappeared into the ether, never to be acknowledged again. When I'm working with people and we're starting to talk about boundaries, especially when we end up getting into separation or divorce, boy, this one comes out uh, even more. You know, when we're talking about, hey, how about that child support? Or you don't want to split 50-50 on this dental bill? No response. You know, but when then they say, um, I need to drop the kids off early, you know, then, oh, there, there's, and then again, the kind person's responding. So on that one, and it can feel like you're being so mean or rude, which is hard for the nice person. But I, I often say, here's where the boundary is that I'm going to copy and paste the message until you answer it. And then finally you will get the answer. But the nice person, again, trying to give that, uh, that narcissist the benefit of the doubt is often thinking, oh, maybe, maybe I asked the question wrong. Maybe that was rude of me. Uh, maybe he didn't see it, but no, start to trust your gut and <laughs> start to, start to listen to yourself. You listen to your instincts a little bit more. Um, also in that uh, intentional, more aware of an impact um, version of gaslighting is it's called whiplash communication. So he says the final straw came in one of our last communications. And it's when communication went from I'm upset to you don't have to respond to I'm betrayed. And you said you would, but uh, goes all the way to you don't have to. And by the end of the message, this person was left wondering if they should even respond. Uh, had they done something wrong? Had they inadvertently impacted this person in a negative way, but they didn't need to say anything. So on the one hand, um, they say, I think the gaslighter in this situation is likely confused by what they're feeling. And on the other hand, it's not their first rodeo. They've done this before, knowing that others end up hurt or angry or unsettled by their actions. So sometimes when the gaslightee doesn't understand, the gaslighter simply tells them, you just don't get it. You know what? Don't even worry about it. You don't have to respond. And in, in this person's case, they said it was true. The paradoxical pieces didn't make sense when you put everything into a cohesive whole, meaning that... The, I don't know how many times I, we, I processed this with someone in session yesterday where um, the, you know, they, they were just saying, you know what, I, I don't even want to continue to have this conversation. It's obvious that you don't understand me. You don't hear me. And so um, don't even, I, I don't even want you to respond. So what are they trying to do? They're still trying to control the situation by telling you you're the one that doesn't get it, even though you're actually the one that gets it. And they just are having a hard time taking ownership or, or giving an answer that doesn't point, paint them in a bad light. The last one is, 
This is a bad one. The malicious with intent to desire to, uh, with desire to harm. Um, textbook gaslighting. Uh, Stephanie Sarkis has an article where she outlines the warning signs, blatant lies, denial, manipulation, and wearing the gaslighty down, mismatching actions and words, aligning others against you, weaponizing confusion, projecting all of those. Um, gathering the army. This one I talked about a little bit before. Um, the most malicious piece uh, that they this person experienced with their colleague. He had other people look at the project and informed me that they thought that it was fine. So he said he had to step away. If he was going to get the, if the other person, if the narcissist was going to gather the masses against this person and continue to prove their point against mine, then actually the company's point, where were they to go with it? Nowhere. One person against an army is useless and it certainly had them questioning what they were proposing. Um, and, and that one's the one where, and I can give so many examples of, and I didn't even recognize this was a trait of narcissism until I was well into my practice, where it would just be those situations that just, that just felt odd. They, they hit different, as the kids say. So all of a sudden, I would have, a let's say, a wife on my couch, and then the husband say, you know, I was talking with your with your brother and, and my, my, my sister-in-law and, or, you know, my sister and even my physician. I was talking with him, and we all kind of think you're depressed. Like, that was a real conversation. And, and it, the, the, the narcissist, the gaslighter, thinks that uh, they've gathered this army. So now that they can, it's even more reason to prove that their, their spouse is crazy. But in reality, it's like, really? You, you, you talked to all those people? And that one became one of the easiest ones to um, work with, to set a boundary with, is then I would often say, you know what? That sounds like that's really hard for the, you know, your wife there to hear that you would um, talk to all these other people. So maybe what we should do is let's let's put a group text together and let's just address that with everybody. You know, I'm more than happy to get everybody on the same page. And what would happen? I mean, and I don't like using all or nothing statements, but I will say always, always the, the gaslighty, the narcissist or the gaslighter or the narcissist would say, no, you know, I, I don't want to bring them into it. You know what? That that's, I don't want to do that. And I would see that in my sessions so often. Um, I would get a text from one person and they would say, Hey, uh, did you, again, I'm going with the wife as the, um, the, the husband is the narcissist in this scenario, the one I'm thinking of in particular, where the wife says, Hey, did you really, um, say that this was probably more of my fault, but that, um, that you were afraid to tell me directly? <laughs> I'm like, no, oh no, we're putting a stop to this right now. So then whenever we'd have the next session, it's like, Hey, can you just, uh, sounds like there's some confusion there. So can you just send me the group text? If you, you know, if the husband in this scenario, um, feels inclined to share something that he feels that I said um, about the wife in a session. First of all, it's kind of not the way it works. And so um, let's just do a group text. And then surprisingly, things that I were that I was saying uh, about the 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 victim, the spouse here, um, they disappeared because now the narcissist knew that they couldn't do that anymore. That was a good example of setting a nice, healthy boundary. But but gaslighting is it's so much more prevalent than uh, what we think it is. And this article kind of sums up by saying, you know, sometimes it occurs as these microaggressions from people who don't even know they're doing it. Um, I would imagine most people are guilty of this. I've been guilty of that. Sometimes we know something's off, but we and we still pursue a little line of inquiry and then things end up taking a turn for the worse. And we can start we just left feeling like our reality is, is just starting to quiver. Um, they say in this article, like a like a minor earthquake. Um, and she said until in her own case, it wasn't until somebody else pointed it out that they began to see it. And with that new perspective, they were able to get a huge sigh of relief and understand 
Um, you know, the, they said the furniture in my home had never been rearranged. Somebody was just trying to make me feel like it had been. And this is where I have so, so many examples of this. I honestly have, I, I think it's 40, 50 pages over the years of gaslighting examples. And in this podcast, I want to start to get to those so people will understand that they're not crazy. So if you are, are talking about, you know, if you're aware, you're the, the nice, kind person that's waking up to narcissism and you're telling, you know, you're saying, okay, but no, I, I, sometimes I do feel like maybe I'm, I'm doing the gaslighting. No, what you're trying to do is, is make sense of things and even explain yourself or point out these errors of uh, what you're seeing in front of you. And then when it's turned back around on you and you are the one feeling crazy, it can feel like, well, I guess I'm trying to convince him that he's wrong and maybe I'm not. No, you, you, we got to get you back to trust in your gut and, and being able to get above that, uh, that gaslighting, the, the anxiety that comes with that. You know, I go back to the episode that I talked about the things you can do in these interactions. You got to raise your emotional baseline. That's self-care. You got to get your PhD in gaslighting. You need to understand when it's happening and then be able to step back and just look at it. Talked about this on an episode, I think maybe last time too, about those uh, popcorn moments. You got to be able to sit back and watch the show and not get emotionally invested or involved when you know, oh, this is gaslighting. Yeah, I, I never said that. Or no, he actually did do that. And so I'm not going to engage. And that's when you're going to start to watch the person go through a variety of emotions because they're trying to find that right button to push to get you to then engage. So then it will not be about them. It will now be about the argument or the confusion or it's about you and your reaction. It's not. So covered a lot of ground. Uh, we're going to do uh, probably a Q&A next week because I have so many cues. So I need to give some A's. So if you have some more cues, send them in through the contact form on TonyOrbay.com. Please keep you know, sharing the, your examples and, and your aha moments and your awareness because it's helping so many people as you do that. And I can't lie, I'm so grateful for the reviews. Um, I actually just read through them last night to my wife. I was almost, uh, I was getting a little bit teary-eyed because there's so many nice things said there. And uh, and I hate being that guy that's saying, so like, view, subscribe, all that stuff. But it, it really, I've been shocked at the download numbers and the amount of ground this podcast is covering. Um, because people need all the tools. I, I have zero scarcity mindset when it comes to this podcast. I want you to get all the podcasts, all the information, all the YouTube videos, because it takes all that to help you. Oh, here, I'm going to be cheesy now to help you wake up to narcissism. All right. Have an amazing weekend and we'll talk to you next week.